Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. MM stands for Mick McCarthy, not Merlin Magician. Evans will hit it all! That is special! It's magic at Molyneux! Dreaming is for free. Hello and welcome to the Molyneux View podcast with me, Jackie Oatley, and the Athletics Wolves correspondent who helpfully has all the answers to all their issues. Tim Spears. Hello, Tim. You sure you mean me? Yes, that's you, that's you, that is. <laughs> On this week's pod, Wolves scored twice at Molyneux without the help of a penalty for the first time since January. That day, they played a back four and lost 3-2 to West Brom. This time, they played a back four and lost 3-2 to West Ham. Much for Nuno to ponder. It came off the back of the dreadful news of Johnny's second ACL injury to the same knee, as well as Willie Bolly testing positive for COVID after his trip to Africa. We'll discuss everything with the help of your tweets, which are pretty lively, it has to be said. Also, Wolves' loanee Rafa Mir is smashing it in La Liga. Should Wolves retain him, loan him or sell him? Some very welcome news was the Wolves women's heroic FA Cup penalty shootout victory over a team a division above them after they'd had almost four months without so much as a training session together. Tim was at Castlecroft to witness it and clearly was the inspiration for Dan McNamara's players. And finally, we'll preview Fulham away this Friday night, which has suddenly become a little bit more important than perhaps it should have been. The Athletics Fulham writer Peter Rutzler will join us. Tim, how are you, Fruit? Hello, Jackie. You're right. Hello. Three weeks without football. We are back, back with a bang. I've seen um, nine goals in two days over Easter. What a weekend. Yes, and a load of penalties. My goodness. Oh, Tim. Right, we've got quite oh, a lot Jackie. to talk about today. <laughs> oh, I don't know, I just stop. I've got so many tweets just going through them all. There's a lot of very unhappy people. But hey, two points from a possible 15, one win at home in five in all competitions. Let me just quote your article, your latest one, on the West Ham match. In their past five games playing with that system, Wolves have scored 10 goals and conceded 12. Their last five games, with the usual 3-4-3, have seen them score three and concede six. So we may as well just dive straight in, hadn't we, on the old system change. When you saw the team come up, did you think, oh yeah, that's definitely a back four? Or did you think, oh, he's, he's bound to squeeze a fifth defensive player in there somewhere surely on account of the fact they're playing Mikel Antonio in particular not to mention Jesse Lingard when I saw the formation I thought I thought it was 4-2-3-1 and I started licking my lips metaphorically because you just knew that it's going to be like a really entertaining evening one way or other I don't always agree with you on Twitter Jackie Oatley but my goodness you summed it up perfectly when you said the word mayhem the word mayhem because <laughs> that's exactly exactly what it is with 4-2-3-1 it's remarkable to me how the same group of players can play slightly differently on the pitch and produce such like utterly contrasting performances I don't remember Wolves kind of switching through formations in my lifetime and seeing such a contrast this formation completely opens Wolves up they attack with more vitality but they defend like turkeys it's absolutely ridiculous the last three home games they've played 4-2-3-1 the West Brom game as you mentioned the Arsenal game which was utter carnage when they should have been 4-0 down after half an hour and somehow won and then West Ham on Monday night I mean, the defending is shambolic. It's like 2011-12 levels when they were finishing bottom of the league. I know West Brom scored five at Chelsea, but but when they came to Molyneux, they, they, they couldn't score at all, and, and, and Wolves handed them three on a plate. Um, and West Ham scored three after 38 minutes. It was Laurel and Hardy-style defending. Um, <laughs> but, but at the other end, okay, they had their highest XG of the season on Monday night, 2.15. They had their second most shots of the season, which was 20, 
the most shots they've had in a season was, was in that West Brom game when they played the same formation. So this formation, it completely opens it up. They have loads of shots, they create loads, they tend to score a few, but at the other end, they're so leaky, it's incredible. I think it's an absolutely fascinating debate as to which formation they use going forward. Although I think it's it's clear that they've got to use 3-4-3 for now to get some points on the board and avoid any notion of getting sucked into a relegation scrap. Friday's game, as you say, is very important now. The gap to Fulham, currently in 18th, could be 12 points or it could be six. It's a little bit mad that it's actually come to this, that people are talking about Fulham away as being critical at this stage of the season in what will be sort of the middle of April. It's extraordinary. It's come to this. Matt Kirby was four at the back planned before injuries to Johnny and Bolly, who tested positive for COVID. Why does Nuno keep trying four at the back when we don't have the defensive ability within the squad to play this way? Three to four defensive signings needed until this system can be used. Was it you when I was listening to the press conference on Monday night? Was it you that asked him whether that was the case? And he sort of didn't really answer specifically as to whether he was planning that anyway or not. It was me. He didn't answer specifically, but I listened to it back this morning and he did answer in his sort of Nuno way. Yeah, Mark Thompson tweeted similar lines. Uh, the problems with injuries before last night's game, and obviously they lost three players on the eve of the match. Plus we can't play as a back four. Why did Nuno not stick to a system, i.e. three at the back, that we can play instead of a four? And even worse, after 10 minutes, everyone could see it wasn't working, but he still carried on with it. So yeah, lost Johnny, Bolly and Matinho, three key players on the eve of the game. And Nuno did say, when I put that to him, he said, we were planning on starting with Bolly and Johnny until yesterday morning, which is Sunday morning. We then tried to find a different solution, was how he put it. So I, I read that as saying it was it would have been a 3-4-3, but because they lost those two players, he went for a different formation. I assume if Matinho was fit, then Dendonka would have just dropped into defence. Dendonka and Saisi, the side of Cody, and then Matinho and Neves in midfield. Coming off the back of what was a, a decent performance against Liverpool, you know, they, they gave him a good game that night and arguably should have had a point out of that game. So I expected them to carry on in that vein. Yeah, the injury problems forced his hand. He obviously doesn't trust Kilman at the moment because you could have still played 3 4 3 with Dendonka in midfield if you bring Kilman in to the left of Cody and leave Sice on the right. So he's probably reluctantly used that formation, backed his team to outscore West Ham. And like I said, they, they did create a lot. The numbers back that up. I thought Pedence was great. It's a shame he had to go off at half-time in what looked like a pre-planned move. But it's just this defence four at the back. They just can't do it. I was a bit surprised because I thought it was the other way around, that he'd be more likely to play five at the back without having the benefit of Willie Bolly in there. The idea of not having Bolly and then going to a back four seemed to be... I don't know, hugely surprising for me, just especially knowing you're coming up against Mikhail Antonio, who ripped Wolves to shreds in the reverse fixture, remember? It was Wolves' worst performance of the season, specifically defensively. They were awful. So I thought he'd have gone for that reinforcement at the back. And, and lots of people have asked, what's Max Kilman done wrong? They don't think he's put a foot wrong. I know it's not ideal having, say, Saiz, a left footer, as well as Max Kilman, a left footer either side of Connor Cody. But surely it would have given them a bit more stability, knowing that Jesse Lingard was in such good form as well as them having Antonio. Well, I spoke to Rashane Thomas, a West Ham reporter, you know, before the game, and he said, stop Lingard, you'll have a really good chance of winning. I think he scored five in seven going into the game, arguably in the form of his career. And Antonio, like you say, had ripped Wolves and specifically Connor Cody to shreds in the reverse fixture, pulling them here, there and everywhere. Well, I thought when he went off... Um, Wolves were the better team for the rest of the game when Antonio went off injured. I know, Although I know his Bowen, replacement promptly scored. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. No, I know Bone scored, but, but I thought generally Wolves were the better team after Antonio left the field. The problem was Lingard. I mean, it was, um, which you knew was coming. He, he roams in the hole. He loves running at defenders and they just let him do it. It's incredibly frustrating. Nuno's sort of big decision now for the summer. I think I think he likes 4-2-3-1 and, and, and I do as well, actually. And, and we've spoken before. My goodness, if you have Pedence in the 10, if you have Traore doing what he did for the first goal last night, if you have Neto in the form of that he's in, behind Raul Jimenez, I genuinely think you've got one of the most potent strike forces in the in the entire division. I really do think that, and I don't think many people would disagree with that. So that's that's a massive thing for next season to, to get to get that working and get that moving. But the problem is problem is behind them. So Nuno's big decision decision is whether this group of players defensively can be coached to play this system as he 
as he coached them to play 3-4-3. And it shows how well he coached them in 3-4-3, that they knew it like the back of their hand and they would keep clean sheets for fun. And as soon as you move it around a little bit, they look lost. That's a fascinating thing for the summer because you look at Saïs playing in defence for Morocco in a back four or a three. You look at Cody being in England's defence now and playing in England uh, for England in a four. You look at Willy Bolly, who many would consider to be the best defender at the club. So they should be good enough. Um, but it's not as simplistic as just the centre-halves for me. It's not just, oh, these centre-halves can't play in a four, go and buy a new one. When you look at West Ham's first and third goals last night, they picked up the ball in their own bo- in their own half or their own box and five, ten seconds later, it's in the Wolves' net. That's not just about centre-halves. That's about not leaving yourselves exposed to the counter-attack. That's about midfielders protecting the defence. That's about the full-backs as well protecting the defence. That's about the whole team being alert to turnovers of possession, which is quite basic, really. Dendonka, just bring Lingard down. Just do it. Just stick a foot in. They just let him run. They look scared. Um, John Garbett tweets to say, any thoughts on why our lads won't put a foot in and take a yellow for the team? They almost gave Lingard a guard of honour on his way to score in the opener. Um, it feels like with a bit of nastiness or willingness to scrap, we'd have won. I'd agree with that. Nuno hinted at it after the game. Um, in a nice way, he said, just take a book in. He basically said they need to stop the game during those turnovers and those counterattacks. Stop the game means either win the ball back or give a foul away. But either way, don't just let Jesse Lingard run into the box completely unchecked. And Paul Brown said, definitely too nice. Both opposition centre-backs booked last night in the first 15 minutes, target them. And you do wonder, we've, we've talked about this before, haven't we, about whether they're just all a bit too placid and a bit too, you know, not complaining to the referee when they've blatantly been fouled in the penalty area for example and whether they need that little bit extra grit and steel I mean you saw what West Ham did to kill the game off and it caused a bit of a rumpus at the end and it Jesse Lingard was said afterwards well I was just managing the game and that's what Wolves need to do isn't it yeah absolutely and um, it's not just about the formation you know as we saw against Liverpool and we've seen time and again with 3-4-3 it doesn't have to be boring you know, it can it can be dynamic. I just think the dynamics of the team themselves have changed this season. Um, I mean, the, their record since Jimenez's injury is 18 points from 20, which is relegation form. They've won four games in 20 since Jimenez was injured. So it's the season that never ends. I think a lot of fans are wishing it away now. And I think they just need to get through this season. I don't think they've turned into a bad team. Personally, I don't think drastic action is needed at all. Um, I don't think they need to sack the manager. I don't think they need to get rid of a load of players or, or many at all. I just think they need a break. I think they need to hit the reset button. I think they need a good pre-season. And I think they need a couple of two or three savvy additions and get him and his back. You know, Andy Crane asks, um, are fans overreacting? to a tough two years, effectively a double season with no break. We should have got something out of the last two games. There's no need to panic and sack Nuno. Remember the Mick McCarthy emotional sacking, he says. The priority now is to avoid the relegation scrap, which is in our hands, and then have a summer reset in the in, in the summer. You know, and, and I keep being asked on Twitter, Jackie, you know, why, why are you not tearing into them? Why are you not tearing into Nuno? Why are you not tearing into the club? I just think they've been dealt a bad hand this season. Yes, they've made some mistakes and yes, they've made some misjudgment. But these things, you know, bad seasons can happen sometimes. Average seasons can happen. I've said it time time and time and time again. that You know, they've, they've come in straight off the back of last season with no break. They've had no pre-season. You look at teams like West Ham and Villa who had six, seven weeks to prepare for the season. They've both had great seasons and that is no coincidence in my mind. I wrote a piece recently saying how mentally shot they were when the season began, all the problems they've had with disruption and organisation. And then the Jimenez injuries, you know, completely derailed them. I think if Jimenez is in the team, they're in the top 10 and everyone's sort of okay with, with how it's gone this season. So, you know, in hindsight, they should have had more than Fabio Silva as, as, as cover. You know, the new signings have taken time to bed in or are once for the future. I really don't think there's too much wrong with this squad, to be honest. I, th- I just think it needs a bit of a reset and a bit of fine-tuning. I think you hit the nail on the head with the pre-season. They desperately need that. How long do you reckon they'll have? Because Nuno talked about the frustration of not being able to plan a location for pre-season due to COVID restrictions. Yeah, there is that. He spoke about that on Friday and said, look, the chances are we're not going to be able to go abroad. And obviously we know they like doing that, not just in the summer. You know, they like going to Marbella. They've done it every every year that um, that they've been allowed to since Nuno came in. They've had a week in Marbella in the winter. So he was sort of saying, look, it's probably going to be the UK. 
for example, we might go to, I don't know, to Scotland, I think he was saying, as an example. But then it's about you need to find games against the opposition that you want to be able to build yourselves up to the campaign. You know, Wolves have played some good teams in pre-season in recent years. I remember them playing Baal and Young Boys. Um, they played Man City in China before their Europa League run. It's going to be a logistical nightmare as, as to how to get teams in a, in a short area if they want to go to Scotland or Wales or whatever. You know, Are they going to be able to find Premier League opposition willing to play at the right time? So... It sounds like a logistical nightmare. You throw in the Euros, you throw in the Gold Cup and the Olympics, and yeah, there are lots of issues at hand, but hopefully the majority of the squad, and if you look at the most recent round of internationals, there weren't a huge amount that went away with Semedo and Traore you know, not called up by their countries, which suggests they might not be going to the Euros this summer. As far as people like Semedo and uh, Traore go, I don't think that would be a bad thing at all, really. And I think for a lot of the players, it wouldn't be a bad thing um, if they weren't in the Euros um, as far as their Wolves careers go. Because as we said, they've been so disrupted by no pre-season last season. So they need to get as much of a six-week block in as they can with as much of the squad as they can. And it seems that Nuno's biggest decision now is, does he want to start with a clean slate next season with a back four as his preferred choice, with the option of switching, of course, but primarily a back four, or does he want to start with a back five? And that seems to me to inform all the decision-making when it comes to recruitment. Yeah, and as as far as I'm aware, you know, they weren't planning on playing 4-2-3-1 this season when they were uh, bringing players in last summer. They didn't have 4-2-3-1 in mind. So now they need a clear plan for the summer. Which formation is going to be their number one formation or are they going to use both? Um, that would probably be the wisest thing to do, to have both at your, uh, your disposal for different games for horses for courses. We've seen how much more potent they are in attack with 4-2-3-1. When uh, defensive teams come to Molyneux and sit deep, that's the formation that I'd want to be playing. But if you're going away to Man City, the the way that they counterattack with three four three is is that's not something I'd want them to to uh, to give up lightly. So I think it's a case of using both, but having players who can use both systems. And just before we move on, and then we'll later preview the Fulham game. The key issue that's really getting the fans aerated is the Connor Cody situation. Brilliant in a back five where he's in that role where he can direct traffic and sweep the ball long, etc. But not many seem to be backing him in a back four. Do you think Connor Cody, bearing in mind his leadership skills are so crucial to that side, is a bit of an issue to Nuno with regards to planning for a back four? Or do you think he just needs the right players around him to make it work? I think... If you play Connor Cody with Willy Bolly with two reliable fullbacks and some midfield cover in front, then he can absolutely do it. Of course he can. There's no doubt in my mind, actually. I just think that there's been such disruption when they've played four at the back in terms of personnel. We've seen eight players at left back this season or left wing back. Eight players. We've seen Samada not perform to, to, to the levels that they were hoping this season. We've seen Saiz, Bolly, Kilman as partners for Cody. I don't think they get enough protection from midfield. So it's too easy to just point the finger and say, look, oh, he hasn't, he's not, he's not played in the back four in his career, so he can't do it. I think he can, and Gareth Southgate thinks he can, and Nuno thinks he can, and they're, and they're, and they're far better judges than any of us. And if you look at that first goal last night, you point the finger at Romain Saiz, who for me has, has cost far more goals than Conor Cody in the, in the past three or four months, either getting under crosses or not tracking his man, or just, let, or just you know, Cody was tracking Antonio for that first goal last night. It's, it's Saiz and Dendonka who let Lingard go. So I don't understand why the finger gets pointed at Cody. TBH. But what I would say, Jackie, after a good rant there for 15, 20 minutes, is that there were quite a few positives last night. I actually yes. really enjoyed watching Wolves play at times. <laughs> and like we said, the XG was, was phenomenal by Wolves' standards and they've had 20 shots. Is that I good then, some... two-point-something XG? It's good that for Wolves this season. you to score two goals, is that right? And that's the highest yeah, they, of the season. They haven't, they haven't hit two yet this season, so that's definitely a plus. I thought they played some really good stuff on the front foot. I thought Pedence looked pretty good since he's been out for two months. I thought he was having an effective game, and it's a shame he had to come off. And the silver goal was just brilliant. And, you know, we've spoken about him so much this season. I, I really do think there is, there is big potential there. I really do. The kid's 18. If he'd scored two or three more goals than he had this season, if, if two or three of those easy chances had gone in, he'd be on five or six goals. He'd be top scorer. We'd be saying what a fantastic prospect he is for someone so young. It's perception, really, because he's missed two or three easy chances. People throw that stick at him that he's not good enough and he's never going to be good enough. He's a kid. His movement is excellent. That goal last night, he knows how to draw himself away from defenders. 
and be in the right place at the right time. We've seen that time and again this season that he that he has been in the right place at the right time. That is a excellent quality for a striker to have. It's something that William Jose is not doing at the moment. These are very good qualities. His anticipation is very good. The way he took that goal, his first touch, his finish, really impressed. If you've got Pedence, Traore and Neto creating space, distracting defenders who need to double up on them, then there's pockets of space for Silva to exploit and he does exploit those spaces. It's just the finishing touch that's been lacking. But like I say, he's a kid. I think he'll get there. I really do. But that is what we've been saying, is that he hasn't been playing with the players close to him who can slot the balls into him so he can show what he can do, just like he did against West Ham. It's it's trying to head the ball that's got snow on it coming from 60 yards away and he you know, misplaces his header off his shoulder and misses a great chance and people say he's rubbish, but that's not what he's in the side to do. Anyway, we have to move on. We will come back to that towards the end. Well, no, I'll just say very quickly, it's, it's rhythm. Strikers need rhythm. They need to play every week. That you know, when, when they're heading those chances for the balls that are coming down, it's second nature. They don't want to have to think about it. You're not going to get that unless you're starting every week. Talking Wolves strikers, Tim, Rafa Mir, 23-year-old Spaniard, is going great guns in La Liga. He scored in total in his two loan spells with Huesca, who've been struggling, 19 league goals and 47 appearances, 10 this season in the league from 23 starts. What do you do? Snog, marry, avoid? <laughs> oh, we should do another podcast that's just not about football I think we just should get, just get, should we have red wine involved as well <laughs> red wine should we do that oh goodness yeah mind dangerous. you wasn't that what we did with the quiz the athletics quiz when I drank for the first time in about a month and <laughs> nearly fell off my chair and slurring your words I remember that one um, <laughs> so uh, yeah Rafa Mir um, <laughs> uh, do, I mean did you see the second goal he scored the other night that chip my god I know yeah. the, the keeper's given him a, a wide a wide berth but my God. That is confidence, my friend, isn't it? That is confidence when you are the main man with his fancy slick hair and you love he his hair, looked don't you? the part, didn't he? he? He didn't look like a bloke who was on loan at Forest getting absolute pelters from the fans. He looked like he was the main man. He did, yeah. Fantastic for him. Uh, two more goals. That's 13 in 30 in all comps this season. The worst team in La Liga. Another conundrum for Nuno. You know, what do you do with him this summer? Now, I wrote a piece about him a few weeks ago and spoke to Robbie Dunn, who's a La Liga expert, and he said, look, this guy's value has rocketed. He'll have a host of suitors next season in La Liga. So what do you do? Do you bring him back? Do you give him a chance? Personally, I don't think they will. When Nuno sent him on loan to a Spanish second-tier club for 18 months, that was him saying his mind was made up. I don't think Nuno was overly impressed with what he saw from Rafa Mir at Compton. So has this season changed Nuno's mind? I would probably say no. I think his value has rocketed. I think he'd be worth at least £10 million now for a player they paid £1.5 million for a few years ago. So yeah, this is a conundrum for Wolves in the summer. They, they'll have him and his back all being well. They've got Fabio Silva. So what do they do? Do they have a third striker to sit on the bench? It's not really Nuno's way to have players who are just going to sit on the bench and be... Th- he doesn't have any third choice players in the squad really in terms of senior players so would they bring Rafa Mir back he did have about five left backs on the back <laughs> yeah. slight exaggeration but still mind you he's needed them so if they, yeah would they bring Rafa Mir back just, just to be third choice I, I don't think they would I think they'd want a young player coming through from the academy or from the under 23s younger than Mir um, who's now established as a first team player in La Liga and I think they'll take advantage of his excellent season and sell him on for a decent fee that can be reinvested into the first team so snog marry avoid which one avoid which one is sell, sell for a decent fee out of snog marry avoid Avoid. <laughs> avoid, but make a handy Nuno's profit. not going to snog or marry him. He's going to avoid it. But he's going to make a lot of money out of him and maybe even buy a defender or something exciting like that. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Tim, you've been very busy, haven't you, with a couple of very good articles, which I read in full, and I ticked your little awesome box at the end, because that's what podcast wives do. Um, your nice one on um, 
cult heroes. Mo camera. You look at me as if I'm being sarcastic. Whenever I say <laughs> yeah, anything, I'm, I'm whenever I say anything nice line. to you. No, I loved it. I loved it. Cult heroes. I've been a few over the years. Yes. So he lived in Codsall, which was my most interesting takeaway. And the fact that he's got a, has he still got a wine bar in Tettenhall that you've drank a lot of red wine at? <laughs> he has. He has. I've been there before purely for research purposes in advance of doing this article a few months later. Right. Um, I drank several bottles of wine in my, my Kamara's bar just to road test the wine, which is Where great. Where is it out of interest? Uh, exactly it's right by the green. It's right by the green in Tetnall, right in the right in the meaty district of, of Tetnall. Nice little street with some shops on. And a little wine bar with Mo Camara sat in there, who looks... Is that near where... Sorry, is um, that where Bully had his Italian restaurant? Right around the corner, yes. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, Mo Camara, who looks exactly the same. He has not aged one day, which is why he still gets recognised quite a lot walking around uh, Wolverhampton. So, yeah, um, we were we were all asked to um, at The Athletic to write about our club's cult hero. And there are so many options with, with Wolves. And, you know, um, I mean, Bully's sort of one that people outside the club would say is a cult hero, but he's, he's too much of a hero to be a cult hero. Because <laughs> there is obviously, there's quite a subtle difference between the two. A cult hero, I think, is just someone that you remember so fondly, probably from your youth, who wasn't the team's best player, but you loved watching him play and he was entertaining. And someone like John DeWolf would fit the bill as well perfectly. And, and Mo Kamara springs to mind for me. He didn't play a huge amount of games. I think it was about 50. But in that season, 01-02, when Wolves play some of the best football that I've ever seen at Molyneux um, for kind of six months when they were actually absolutely storming the league before something happened, which we don't talk about. And Kamara was a big part of that at left back or left wing. I just loved the way he played. He was so full of life, uh, always played with a smile on his face, did everything at 100 miles an hour, even if it was even if it was wrong. You know, he'd, he'd kick the ball out of the ground or, or, he'd, or he'd, he'd literally put a cross, you know, over the top of the North Bank, you know, because so, he just did everything at full That is health. quite impressive. I don't think you could do that if you tried, really. <laughs> so uh, he was great and I really enjoyed the interview. Um, some great memories of that time. He said Kevin Muscat's the nicest, like, was the nicest bloke at Wolves, which some people off will find. Off the pitch. He did say off the pitch. Off the pitch and I've heard that from, before, a few, yeah. from a few other people. Yeah, it's amazing how these psychopaths... <laughs> Uh, so nice, uh, so nice away from the pitch. So yeah, some nice, nice tales from him of, of settling in England, living in Codsall, and sadly having to leave the club because he did his cruise ship in his third season, which is the start of the promotion season under Dave Jones, and never really got back in. So uh, yeah, re- really enjoyed that one. And Adama Traore is a bit of a hero these days. I'm not sure we've given him enough credit actually for his performance against West Ham the other night he was absolutely brilliant that goal that he created for his first assist of the season before we come on to talk about his oily arms do I think that is so overdue in terms of he'd earned it before but his teammates hadn't finished off his his, uh, wonderful crosses the run was insane he picks the ball up so deep and takes on four players but at the same time it just felt normal he does do one of those every game but the difference here the cross with his weaker left foot was outstanding, absolutely outstanding. And there's Leander Dendonka arriving, doing exactly what we've been calling for, powering a header past the keeper. He should have done that a few times a season. Unfortunately, the mantle of being the, or fortunately in his case, the mantle of being the player in the Premier League with the most shots but no goals was Leander Dendonka. It's now not him because he scored. It is now Adama Traore, who is now the player in the Premier League with the most shots without a goal this season. I mean, he's, he's finally gotten his, his assist. But really, as as we know, he won a penalty at Brighton. Um, he should somehow be registered for that goal against Leeds, which uh, which bounces off the keeper's back. And he set up several chances on a plate this season for, for other players. But but good, good for him to, to get that off his back. And in terms of your article, you looked into, we still don't know actually who specifically came up with the idea of the oily arms, but it was based on, tell us, ancient Greek methods of wrestlers. They don't want to. Um, they don't want to identify just who exactly it was. But but yeah, I thought. Why not? Why not? I'm interested. I don't know. It's it's a good. It's a good point. It's it's a team effort. Team game. One pack. (gasps) We are wolves. A we. So yeah, I just thought. Do you know what? Last season, he dislocated his shoulder four times, which is which is crazy. 
to go from that to none this season is worth exploring and it's not just about baby oil in fact that's just the tip of the iceberg really there are two coats here uh, to, 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 to his varnishing there was one layer of Vaseline first and then the baby oil comes in and gets all the credit um, because people have seen him you know, being, being lathered up uh, pitch side I think, I think it's, it's done in the dressing room now but yeah that's, that's sort of yes it stops people grabbing onto him but it's also more important for his confidence and his sort of mental state during games than anything. I think we saw him mentally struggle last season. After a couple of those dislocations, his form tailed off last season. I thought he was thinking about it as the season was going on, which is understandable because, I mean, I haven't dislocated my shoulder, but I can only imagine how much pain it causes. Dislocated my kneecap go- and I didn't walk for 10 months. So. <sighs> and if you think if you think that's going to happen... Uh, from just a, a rather innocuous grab on your arm, then you're going to be—it's going to affect your game. So I think you know the, the oil thing is more for the mental side than anything. But you, as the article says, you know, he's put in hundreds of hours of work here, hundreds of hours. I'm told he does at least one hour a day strengthening his shoulder, and that's not just lifting weights up and down. That's more like things to do with resistant bands and movements that he'd make during a game to kind of strengthen up that area. To ultimately avoid surgery, which is what they've managed to do so far. Surgery would mean he'd be out for 6 to 12 weeks. There wasn't really the time to do that last season because no one knew how long the the break was going to be with the pandemic. And then there was only 30 days between seasons. So they wanted to avoid surgery. Ultimately, they may may have to have surgery to permanently correct the issue. But for now, as Steve Worth, a physio of many, many years experience, including at West Bromwich Albion and other clubs, uh, Mm. told me... um, it's a genius idea, the oil, because it really helps the player on the pitch, and uh, and yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I think full credit, as we've said time and again, to Wolves' um, medical team um, for resolving the issue, certainly for this season, and uh, and I think since January we've seen Traore almost back to the levels um, of his best. And do they reapply it at half time? I believe so. Yes. Mm, interesting. Just a good lathering. <laughs> It's just mad, isn't it? But it's a great idea. Such a good idea. Um, Now, this was a brilliant article, Tim, and I love the fact that it was sourced from the ancient Greeks. Oh, yeah, sorry. That was the inspiration for the idea, apparently. Yes, ancient Greeks. Exactly, because they used to put it on before wrestling so they could not be grabbed quite as easily. So, Tim, we thought we'd learn a little bit more about what the ancient Greeks did in sporting context to see if we can get any more marginal gains courtesy of the ancient world. Are you ready for this? Okay. We've got some facts from the ancient Olympics, from when I was at school. It was the episode of the BBC podcast, You're Dead to Me, which is also made by The Athletic, by the way, if you want to have a listen. So, Tim, what do you think the first ever Olympic event was? Wrestling. No, it's a 200 metres. It was called the Stadion. Okay, sorry. Which is German for stadium. And it's where they get the word stadium from, hey? Very good. Yeah. What did ancient Greek athletes wear to compete? Little tight white shorts. Athletes in ancient Greece competed naked and timed up. Oh, I've got a rude word again here. You know what I'm like after I didn't say arse the other week. Is it is it bum? No, winkies. <laughs> <laughs> you what, mate? <laughs> they tied up their winkies. <laughs> <laughs> Does it say winkies or is that, or is that the word Can you, you tell I've got a six-year-old son? <laughs> well... It doesn't say winkies, it says penises, but that feels too rude. Well, they 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 competed naked and tied up their penises while competing using a technique called kynodesmi in ancient Greek, which translates as dog tying. Ow! Why would you do that? Why wouldn't they just wear pants? Oh, my God. Maybe <laughs> pants hadn't been invented. Is that what people used to do? Ow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I could understand oh if it was like, if it was the hurdles. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Thank you for playing that ancient Greek game. That was the most random thing we've ever done on that podcast, but it's possibly the funniest. 
Now, as you may have noticed, Wolves women are through to the third round of the FA Cup after a thrilling and draining penalty shootout win over Nottingham Forest, who are a division above them. And they hadn't even trained together for almost four months prior to six days ahead of this game. And Tim, you were there. What was it like? Oh, it was it was brilliant. You know, before we got all this um, Easter snow, it was a lovely, <laughs> sunny, uh, warm afternoon in, in Castlecroft. And just what an occasion. I think, you know, Dan McNamara, the Wolves women manager, if, if you'd asked him beforehand, he would much rather have a nice, dull, boring 2-0 win. But as it transpired, it was perfect because... They had massive numbers on the stream watching along. I think they had like more than a thousand regularly were watching the stream, which is fantastic. Um, and they had this incredible two-two draw in the FA Cup, and then they've ended up going through on penalties in sudden death. It was such a dramatic game and a great game. I absolutely loved it. Wolves battered Forest, um, but somehow contrived to concede a couple of soft goals, one of which was a penalty. And then, yeah, after four months with no game, with barely any training other than a little bit in the build-up to the game, they then had to play 120 minutes. <laughs> I mean, I bet they're all feeling it the next day. But yeah, no, it, it, it was great. Um, great to see a lot of them, you know, in in the flesh and like watching Jen Cross up front is, is incredible. She's like a human Duracell battery. She just does not stop running. Incredible. And then Summer Holmes, who, hadn't, who I interviewed this week for a piece um, that's coming up later in the week, she hadn't played for about 15 months due to various injuries. She she was immense in midfield, played a full wow. 120 minutes. Um, Tammy George, ahead of her in the 10, was brilliant as well. But but they, they all were, to be honest. And it was a great occasion. Like I said, perfect showcase for Wolves women who are really trying to do things but have been hampered by this bloody pandemic which has kept them in the fourth tier for two years in a row despite the fact that they've won I think it's 20 of their last 21 games in this division they're far too good for this league but because the seasons have been curtailed twice in a row they haven't been able to to earn promotion now there's a silver lining there in that hopefully they will be able to earn promotion they've made an application to the FA which will be heard in the coming weeks as to whether the third tier can be expanded um, by two teams. The third tier is currently uh, 12. There's a North and South, isn't there, the third tier? But but the two leagues are 12. They're hoping to expand them to 14 and bring Wolves women up because, you know, the amount of interest and investment and the improved facilities, they've been training at Compton, you know, in the past couple of years, everything off the field has, 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 has increased, but on the field, they're just, they're just stuck. And it's going to have an impact because a lot of the players there have dropped down, you know, divisions to play for Wolves women and be part of this project. So it's just such an unfortunate set of circumstances. But it was a brilliant day. Jeff Shee was there, and um, that must have been such a lift for the players. You know, ideally they would have had six, seven hundred fans there at, at AFC Wolfrinians, but obviously they couldn't. But to have Jeff Shee there was such a lift. How many? Premier League club chairman Jackie Oatley would give up the Sunday afternoons with their family to go and watch the women's team. Not only was he watching and just kind of sitting and and showing his face, he was actively involved and he was sat in the stand for the first half and I think by the time extra time come round, he was stood by the side of the pitch. He was ball boy at one point. The ball came (laughs) towards him and he was chucking it back. So he's really actively kind of getting involved. Like I said, he's not just there for show. Um, And John Bowater, one of the club directors, was there as well. So... Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Dan McNamara, the manager, and and the players are absolutely buzzing. And massive credit to Wolves as well for their media coverage. Not just streaming the game, but also the build-up. They did loads. They did a 25-page programme, which was digitally available as well. So the upshot of it all, they're in the third round of the FA Cup, I think for the first time since 2015. They go to Watford on Sunday. The game is going to be streamed by Watford, but Wolves are also hoping to stream it themselves to have like proper Wolves coverage. So we'll see what happens with that. But yeah... um, Massive congratulations to them, and hopefully their season isn't over isn't over just yet. It's brilliant. I concur with absolutely everything you said, and that the coverage was fantastic. They had Jeff Frith pitch side. Mikey Burrows was absolutely brilliant on commentary as well. So good with Claire Hakeman, the two of them. Yeah, so super. so good. I was going absolutely nuts at home watching <laughs> on the stream. I, I was so engaged with it, and then the penalty miss from Anna. And you think, oh no, is this our chance? And then um, and the brilliant, brilliant save by Beck Thomas at the end. I mean, properly capped it off. And then the interviews with Dan McNamara. He's such an emotional bloke anyway, isn't he? Macca, he prefers to be called Macca. But he's so good and he's really galvanising force as well. So um, well done to everybody involved. It was just brilliant to watch. It was just enjoyable. I'd love to have been there. It looked brilliant. And look forward to reading your article this week on it because I bet, as with 
women's football generally there are so many stories of players and their histories and where they've come from and what they've been up to and how they've reached this point so many stories in there which are, are of interest that we just don't know about yet so um, and fantastic the club are getting behind them because the potential there is vast the location Massive. of Wolverhampton in the West Midlands in the country where they can attract top players and trust me in the women's game if you are putting on good facilities and you are ultimately prepared to put in the funding, the support from the men's club, that goes a heck of a long way to attracting very, very good, talented young players, older players, the whole works. And you could really achieve something and make a big name in the women's game, which is going in the right direction. Well, some of the things that they do and the facilities that they can use at Compton, it's it's up there with WSL teams. You know, they're in the fourth tier. So, like I said, that they've done so much work off the pitch, but and on the pitch, they should be reaping the rewards of that. But because of the pandemic, they haven't been able to. So, hopefully, I mean, you can never second guess the FA, but hopefully, common sense prevails and they are moved up a league to an expanded third tier, and then they can carry on their journey from there. So, yeah, Watford. Are, Watford were top of the third tier when their season was curtailed. So, massive test. They're in the same league as Forest, who Wolves beat on uh, Sunday. So, massive test on Sunday, but they'll go there with with, with confidence and, and giving it their all because it's, it's potentially the last game of the season. So, they'll give it absolutely everything. God, they could have done with an ice bath, couldn't they, after the weekend? <laughs> yeah. They were exhausted after 120 minutes. But but just on that point about the club support, just look down the road at Birmingham City, traditionally an established top-flight women's team, but the lack of support and the players now speaking out, which is the big difference to previous times. Just just Google Birmingham City women and you see what's going on there. So um, really good to see Wolves heading in the right direction with the women's team and we wish them and Maka and the team all the best at the weekend. Well, Wolves don't have too long to lick their wounds before they're back in action and they are on the River Thames or right next to it on Friday night, hopefully not getting too close, when they play Fulham in the Premier League and suddenly it's becoming a bit more interesting than they had expected it to be. We're joined now by the Athletics Fulham correspondent Peter Rutzler. Hi Peter. Hello, hello, how are we doing? Well, thank you. Also part of the Athletics Fulhamish podcast in which you're probably going to go on there and say how easy it will be to score goals past Wolves. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, I mean, it's still an absolute opportunity for Fulham, but <laughs> I don't think we could say that at all this season because uh, Fulham, one of Fulham's biggest problems has been scoring goals. So as much as Wolves seem um, a little bit of a weakened animal, I think, it's still one of those where... Fulham will always. It seems like with every game, even the ones that the the ones that seem to go their way, there's always a, a difficulty on the horizon. So we'll have to see. I'm sure Wolves will want to respond after the defeat to West Ham. Yeah. Well, what about Fulham? I mean, their fans are absolutely up in arms, aren't they? After their last last match, in which um, they lost three one away to the Villa, having taken the lead on the hour mark through Mitrovic, and when the fans' words, they just collapsed and psychologically were all over the place. Yeah, really perplexing, actually. Um, not something that we've become accustomed to seeing from Fulham or a Scott Parker side. You know, Scott Parker has been very level-headed throughout the season, and including in the the lower parts where Fulham, especially at the start of the season, where they really struggled to really compete, actually. But what was so concerning, I think, about the Villa game was the control they had in the game before they scored and the way in which they collapsed after it, as you said. And after the, the first goal from, from Trezeguet, it just seemed to knock the wind out of their sails entirely. Um, and that, that that's sort of followed from two difficult games against Manchester City and Leeds, but games in which we'd seen a few errors sort of starting to creep in, some uncharacteristic mistakes at the back. And you do wonder if whether that's the pressure of the situation as we get close to the end of the season now starting to take a bit of a toll. Yeah, it's three defeats in a row and four in five, including three home defeats against Tottenham, Man City and Leeds United. And just thinking about the way they ended that game, from Wolves' perspective, it seems as though the best thing they could do would be to approach the game on the front foot, bearing in mind the fragility that was in evidence against Villa. Would you concur with that? I think so. It's such a strange thing, actually, from from a Fulham perspective, because we're, we're just not used to that now. For as much as Fulham have been in the bottom three for most of the campaign, they have become quite a difficult team to play against. You know, in, in every game they've been involved in, they've always been competitive. And I think really it was only the Manchester City game away, way back before Christmas, that was the last time that Fulham seemed pretty much out of it. But even then, they've, they've shown their competitive streak. They've taken points off of Liverpool, Everton, they, they went away and, and won at both of those grounds. They've taken points off Liverpool at home, uh, taken points off, off Spurs. They're a team that have shown themselves capable of competing and yet 
Sunday was a was a complete change. And I think for, for if from a Wolves perspective, you want to try and take advantage of that and just see w- what this actually means. And from a Fulham perspective, it's well, what's the sort of lasting damage here? How, how, how much of an impact will that have when for about, I think, 17 minutes, they were outside of the bottom three for the first time since since December 20th? They finally managed to get their head above the parapet and then suddenly to have it knocked down and taken away in quite um, damaging fashion is, um, is certainly a concern. Mitrovic is a, is a player that's caused Wolves problems in the past, I remember, in, in the Championship in particular. I mean, he's having quite a curious season. Uh, I noticed he hadn't scored for Fulham since September. Then he goes away in the last international break and scores five in three, including a, a couple against Ireland and one against Portugal. And then, of course, scored against Villa at the weekend. Is he guaranteed to start on Friday? And if so, how, how are you judging his form at the moment? Yeah, it's been a, a huge turnaround in fortunes, really, over the past couple of weeks for him. As you say, Tim, he's had a really curious season. I think once when you know he was top scorer last season in the Championship, key reason for, for Fulham's promotion... But the, his start of the season was slow, just like the rest of the team. And then, you know, he, he missed a penalty against Sheffield United and then went to an international duty and missed a crucial penalty for Serbia against Scotland. And he hasn't really been in the team since. You know, Scott Parker's changed the way Fulham play. They've become much more of a counter-attacking team, much more fluid and dynamic and uh, with a greater emphasis on, on pressure and, and, and being better in transitions, which doesn't really suit a, a target man like Mitrovic. So you had that and then you had, you know, his confidence took a massive knock, you know, to to miss the penalty that stops your country going to the European Championships is huge. Um, and that that took a big part, played a big part too. And, and you know, he's he sort of dropped out of the team. Ivan Caballero, of course, uh, formerly of, of Wolves, has, has sort of led the line at times. I think his running has been favoured, his, his pressing and, and, and whatever else. And, and Mitrovic just hasn't quite been able to kick on. I mean, after the January window, Josh, Josh Magic came in, another striker and, it was still the sense that Mitrovic was going to be the main man because he's the more senior player, and but his he just hasn't been hadn't had that natural confidence that you'd expect from a striker in form. He wasn't playing on instinct; he was second guessing a little bit. So all of that together has just meant that he hasn't played much of a role at all. And of course, Fulham's form picked up, and he had to force his way back in. And then, of course, he had his international break last week, and and that was uh, phenomenal for him. You know, became Serbia's all-time top scorer, sort of buried those demons from the previous international break. And then also scored for Fulham and, and broke his duck there. And it's just been sort of a complete turnaround. That is an extremely detailed analysis of one player's <laughs> season. <laughs> it's incredible. It's ingrained into your soul, I can tell. Um, you, you, you mentioned Cav there. How's he, how's he doing? I know he's been on the bench a little bit and, and started here and there. How's he done this season? Yeah, I think he gets a, a mixed reception from the Fulham supporters. I think more is expected of him. I think this year he's he's played in different roles. He's played across the front line. And as I said, he, he's been leading the attack as well, which I think he's done before, but never never with this sort of regularity. And he's done well. I think he, Scott Parker likes the way his defensive work rate, where he's been lacking is, is in front of goal. And that's not just him. Uh, across the Fulham team, um, players have been underperforming when, when they get into the 18-yard box. But that that's kind of where I think Fulham fans wanted more from him. They probably want more more chances created, more assists, more goals. And that's that's kind of what's missing from his game. So he's become quite an integral part of the team, especially this season. Played an important role in promotion last year too, but um, especially with the way that Fulham have adapted their tactical setup, he's he's taken on a, a new responsibilities really. But again, there's, it just feels like this, he needs something more and you know, it applies across the Fulham team, but uh, especially with Cav too. And he has grown. I think people are warm to the, his defensive work, but... There's just that little bit extra that you need, especially in, in the final third. Thank you, Peter. That's OK. Thank you for having me. That's Peter Rutzler. So, Tim, Fulham's confidence is on the floor. They'll really be feeling the pressure in this match way more than Wolves. How do you think they'll approach it? And who do you think Nuno will and perhaps should select? I think I think Wolves will be feeling a little bit of pressure as well in terms of they've got something to lose in this game. You know, in recent weeks... They're floating around mid-table. You know, they're nowhere near the bottom three. Well, if they lose to Fulham, they will be near the bottom three. They'll be six points off. So there is a little bit of pressure on Wolves. However, they don't look like a team that's short on confidence to me, certainly going forward. They're, like I said, they gave it such a good go against Liverpool. They were really good going forward against West Ham for, for most of the game. So what do you do? You know, I'd, I'd love to see Wolves play an open attacking formation and go there and just destroy Fulham and, and outplay them and outscore them. But... We know that the pragmatic and sensible approach and probably the one that Nuno will take is to revert back to 3-4-3 and have some foundation and try and earn a clean sheet 
which they've never done with 4-2-3-1. They've still not kept a clean sheet with that formation. So I would have thought in a game that they really can't afford to lose more than anything. They don't have to win this game, but losing <laughs> losing causes them problems. So you go there not to lose first and foremost. I think that's the sensible, pragmatic approach. And I think that's the one that Nuno will take. So in terms of team news, there'll be no Willy Bolly um, tested positive for COVID and he won't be available at Craven Cottage. So the big thing for me is, is Martinho fit? And if he is, I think he comes in and I think Dendonka drops back to defence and that's probably the best team that you can put out at the moment. But then the issue is, what do you do at the other end? Pedence came in very well. Do you fit him into the team or do you leave him on the bench? There are conundrums at both ends of the pitch, really. Lots of people calling for Vitinha and Otisawi. I don't think it's their time, personally. Wolves still need points to stay in this league. They may already have enough on 35, but you don't want to leave anything to chance. They've got a good run of fixtures now. Their next five games are against teams below them in the table. So now is the time to secure survival, and then you can experiment in the final weeks. That's when you play Vitinha in central midfield or Otisawi. That's when you experiment. You start silver with a run of games, maybe. But I think for the time being, you go with your best 11, your 3-4-3, and you try and grind out a 1-0 win, as they have already done against Fulham this season. Do you reckon they might even score the opening goal for a change? They've only done it once in the last 20 Premier League matches and that was an own goal by the Leeds keeper Melier. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And they're the only team in the Premier League to remain unbeaten when they've scored the first goal, seven times out of seven. Yeah, they've traditionally under Nuno always been a good team that, that you know, when scoring first, that's that's what they've done so well. They score first and then they, they take control of games. So... Yeah, that's the key to it really. As you say, when they score first, they don't lose. So um, if they score first at Fulham, then that'd be perfect. And maybe Adama Traore to score in the Premier League for the first time in 49 matches. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He did have a shot straight at the keeper the other night. But yes, no, that'll be very interesting. And it's probably a good thing that it's not too far off that Friday night game as well. Yes, they'll be, true. They'll be really feeling it after that that defeat. And they so nearly got a point, remember? Dendonka skying the ball in front of goal. Had that gone in, we'd be lauding them today for, for a three-goal comeback and what courage they've got and the, how they've got the mental strength, the desire and blah, blah, blah. But the defensive disappointments behind them well they hit the bar in the first half with with that Pedence header hit the bar and then Jose should have scored and then Neto's fluffed the rebound you know it probably should have been 3-3 at half time really so create more than enough chances to win it it's just just problems at the other end that had been the issue and you look at Mitrovic and Cavalero you know being a real threat for Fulham so um yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be it might be a nervy one Bab might be a nervy one thank you Tim cheers Bab Plenty to talk about just for a change, hey? You can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription and you'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So, for example, you can read Tim's articles on Mo Camera and Adama Traore, amongst many, many others. So go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash wolvespod to take advantage of the 40% discount. That's theathletic.co.uk forward slash wolvespod. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Tim Spears and at Jackie Oatley. And we'll be back next Tuesday to talk about the Fulham game and whatever it is that Tim has in mind by his pen this week. Thanks to Peter Rutzler and you, Tim, and to our brand new producer, Ted Hankey. Well, it's called Steve, but we have to call him Ted. If you're a darts fan, you'll know who Ted Hankey was. If not, Google him, for goodness sake. Until next week, bye for now. The Athletic.